I want you to understand in no uncertain terms that if you're without Christ, you're without hope. You not only have no hope in this world, you are without hope for eternity. The only alternative to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the rejection of the salvation which he purchased on your behalf, which means that you die without forgiveness, without imputed righteousness, without being justified before a holy God, and therefore you have chosen. God didn't choose it for you. You have chosen eternity under condemnation. That is a terrifying thought. And it's a thought that I believe that we should dwell on from time to time because there are people all around us and people that we rub shoulders with, family members, friends, relatives, who are without Christ. And so in these first four verses, Peter is offering to those without Christ, he is calling them as Jesus used the illustration in the parable, come to the wedding. Now, in a sense, because Jesus was speaking to Jews, you and I are invited to the wedding in a very special way. We're invited to come as the bride because the church is the bride of Christ. So he's calling to you to lay aside your pride, lay aside your excuses. You're not too good that you do not need forgiveness and the salvation that Christ offers. You are not too bad. See, this was my problem. From the age of five to the age of 15, I thought I was too bad to be forgiven. I thought that there's no way that God would allow me into his kingdom. I was just telling Nan the other day in our church, there's a beautiful picture that she found. It's a great big picture hanging on the wall in the church and it has Jesus sitting with four little children, a couple on his knees and a couple standing around him and he's got his arms around him and he's looking at him. And you know, you see very few pictures of Jesus where he's smiling. Have you ever noticed that? I remember a friend of mine sent me a picture one time and the picture was of Jesus. He had his hands on his hips and his head was thrown back and it was looked like he was just having the biggest belly laugh you've ever had. You know, just his eyes crinkled and his mouth open and just, just like he was just laughing as hard as he could. And I turned the card over and it said, this is Jesus just after Peter said, I'll never forsake you. <laughs> but as a little child, I thought if I had been there and I came near, he would have shooed me away. I was too bad. And of course, as I grew older in years, I proved that I was worse than I thought. <laughs> but what an awakening, what an amazement when I finally went to a church for the first time in my life at the age of 15 and heard a pastor stand there. And I don't even remember what he taught. All I remember is he convinced me that Christ died for me. He convinced me that I was the object of the love of God. He convinced me that I stood on a precipice between heaven and hell. 
And he convinced me that I could settle the issue once and for all by simply believing with childlike faith in the sacrifice and the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have never regretted that day and I will never get over that day. So if you're here without Christ, I want you to understand the call is going out to you. The invitation is for you. When the Lord says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, he's including you. When he says, he who believes in me shall never perish, he's including you. But we need to understand that there's a certain amount of burden that falls on us. And that is we have to make a choice. And that choice is to receive or reject. As Jesus said, so many who are called are unwilling to come. And they'll use any excuse. I'm too good. I don't need to come. I'm too bad. God won't accept me. I'm too busy. I don't have time. I'm too important. This doesn't relate to me. And there are a million excuses. I'm having too much fun. I've heard that one before. In fact, I heard that from a young friend of mine in high school as I tried to witness to him and lead him to Christ. And he told me I'm young. He was young, good looking. He was one of the most popular kids in the school, athletic. He had it all going for him. And he said, I'm having too much fun. And I said, all of that fun can end so soon. And he said, I'll think about it later. Two months later, he took an overdose of drugs and died. And unless somewhere in between the time I spoke to him in that moment, he trusted in Christ. He is in the lake of fire. He's in hell tonight. And the lake of fire is his future. Don't reject the call. Don't turn a deaf ear to the Lord Jesus Christ. Respond. Answer the call. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way. You know, we put up so many obstacles. I hear people give the gospel and they say, you got to say a certain prayer. You've got to join a certain church. you got to be a certain kind of person. You've got on and on and on. And it's so simple. Jesus boiled it down to the ultimate simplicity. Matthew 18 and verse 3, except you be converted and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And really that word converted could be better translated. Because if you're already converted, you don't need to come to it. The word converted means to turn. Except you turn around. Except you turn your thinking around. And stop trying to figure it all out. We're going to get into this later on. There are different ways that we look at the world and different ways that we learn. And sometimes we use the scientific method and sometimes we use the intellectual philosophical method. But there's only one method to enter eternal life and that is simple childlike faith. And unless we turn away from all of our assumed superiority and all of our assumed capabilities and become like a little child. You know, we raised five children. I think all of you will probably agree. I've never met anyone that had children different than this. When you take a little child and you open a picture book and you point to an elephant and tell them that's an elephant, guess what? They believe you. I've never heard of a kid being shown a picture of an elephant. They go, nah, that's a hippo. <laughs> What's this? Well, this is a lion. Nah, come on. That's not a lion. That's a pig. I've never heard of a kid doing that. You know why? Because they know they don't know. 
And they believe that you do know, and if you lie to them, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. <clears throat> what a terrible end awaits those who abuse children. So the call goes out. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But that's not the end. That's only the beginning. We start here at the cross. <coughs> We're to end at the crown. It's the in between. You know the dash? When you look at a gravestone, you know the dash? Born such and such a year, dash, died such and such a year. The birth and the death is just the beginning and end. The real issue of life is the dash. It's what happened in between. So don't turn your back on the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who are saved, we now get into the issue. How can I become a partaker of the divine nature? How can I actually enter into the fellowship of the nature and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's going to lay this out for us. I think when I was here a year ago, I wrote up on the board here the ladder of life, and I'm sure all of you may remember that. You have it at the bottom of page three. Everything in life begins with attitude. First Peter 5, 5 tells us that there are two fundamental attitudes, arrogance or humility. Every single day, every single moment, we choose one or the other. Our attitude will help us to establish our priorities. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2 tells us there are only two ultimate priorities, carnal and spiritual. <clears throat> What's the difference? Carnal puts me on the throne, spiritual puts Christ on the throne. It's just that simple. Priorities lead us to make decisions. Ephesians 5.15 tells us there are essentially two kinds of decisions, wise and foolish. We make wise decisions if we have good priorities based on a humble attitude. But our decisions are going to lead us to actions. We're going to act on the decisions that we make. And according to Hebrews 5.14, there are two kinds of actions, good or evil. As a matter of fact, Peter Paul in the book of Hebrews distinguishes between the good and the evil. Uh, those who are good, of course, are choosing the plan and the purpose of God for their life. And those that are choosing evil, obviously, are choosing their own path, their own plan, and their own purpose. He says that the immature and the foolish and the uninstructed will often fall for the evil. But if you're well instructed in the word, you will choose the good. Our actions lead to results. Actions always have consequences. And therefore, we come down to the consequences of either blessing or cursing. But I thought it would be worthwhile because as we look at the ladder of life that I've just gone over, or as we look at our passage before us in verses five through eight, we look at these stepping stones and it might be a little bit difficult for us really to figure out how am I going to climb this mountain that has been put before me. Notice that he says, for this very reason, the reason being that God wants you to become a partaker of his divine nature. That's the reason. For this very reason, giving all diligence, the word diligence is a favorite word with Peter. He's going to use it 
again and again through the epistle, and it means strong inner motivation. By the way, if you didn't have free will, every command, every exhortation in Scripture is a waste of time. You ever think about that? If you didn't have free will, you're only doing what you're programmed to do. You're a robot. You're a puppet. You're being manipulated. I can't even in my mind comprehend people who think of God in those terms. And then to think that a perfect God with a perfect plan sets before us the information that we need to accomplish His plan and then allows us to fail and then turns it into good. You know that Peter committed one of the greatest sins possible. He denied his Lord three times. Not only did he deny his Lord three times, it says that he swore an oath. Do you realize how serious that is? To swear by the God of heaven that I don't know who the Son of Man is. I take a vow by the God of heaven and the throne of God. This is the way the Jews would swear. He didn't use curse words like you and I would. He took an oath. I swear by the God of heaven. I swear by the temple and all that's in it. I swear by the mercy seat. I swear by all of it. I, I don't know this man. How much worse of a sin could you commit? You know what Jesus did after the resurrection? He sought Peter out. Do you realize that when you have done the worst that you can possibly do, the very first thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do is He's going to come seeking you. Do you know why? Because He is the good shepherd and you are just a sheep that in your ignorance and frailty and weakness has wandered away and you've gotten yourself lost and you're sitting on a cliff, you're sitting over the precipice and His heart is seeking you. He'll leave the ninety and nine in the fold to come and find you. That's the God that we serve. That's the Christ that we love. And so he says, I want all of this for you. I've given you all the spiritual treasures I can give you. I have a great plan that is going to bring honor and glory. People say, well, why would I want to do things for crowns? Isn't that kind of selfish? No, no, because the crowns are handed to him. The crown is my way of saying thank you. The crown is my way of saying I am eternally grateful for all that you have done for me and I tried every day of my life to show you how thankful I am. And we want that. And whether you want it now or not, and I've had Christians tell me, I don't care if I get rewards or not, you will. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, when your life is evaluated in the light of His perfect holiness, and when He sorts through your life and separates the gold, silver, precious stones. That's the acts of faith. That is the things that you have accomplished by understanding and applying His Word from the wood, hand, stubble. That's all the stuff that has you in the center of it. And then you watch it all burn. How much will be left? How much will remain? It'll matter then because you know what remains? That's your token of gratitude to the Savior for what He's done. I don't want to stand there empty-handed. You know how gracious God is? God is so gracious that Paul tells us in 1 
Corinthians chapter 3, that even if your entire life, from the moment of your salvation until the day you enter his presence, if your entire life counts for nothing, you still have eternal life. Paul says, yet he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You run out of a burning house, all the pictures of your children and grandchildren, all the records, all of your legal documents, all of your possessions, everything burns up. You run out with barely any clothes on and they're on fire and smoking. You escape. You've been saved. Yet so is through fire. So as we go through these steps, how can we maintain on a day-by-day -day basis that we're making some progress. Here are the five daily disciplines. These are not in your notes. You might want to write them down. Every day you need to wash. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How long has it been since you examined your life and confessed your failures? I hope it hasn't been very long. Keep short accounts with God. 1 Timothy 2, 21 and 22. If any man cleanses himself from these things, that is, things of defilement, he will be a vessel of honor, fit and useful for the master. Is that the kind of vessel that you want to be? Certainly the kind that I want to be. By the way, I'm going to check something here real quick. And every once in a while in my mind, little things start clicking. Aha, I was right. It's not 1 Timothy, it's 2 Timothy. Let be accurate. 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22. After we wash, what do we do? When you wake up in the morning, when you go off to work, do you take a shower? It's a good idea. <laughs> Eat. Feed on the word. Matthew 4, 4, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 2, 15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How important is it that we be accurate in our understanding of God's words? Very important. After we wash and after we eat, what do we do? We walk. You walk to the car, you go to work, you walk into where you work or whatever your job may be. You're on the farm, you walk to the barn, you milk the cow, you have to walk to get where you're going to do what you're supposed to do. And so we walk, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. How important is that? I want to have fellowship with my Savior. How can I do it? Walk in the light. Galatians 5.16 Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know when we struggle with those things in life that seem to captivate us and capture us and sometimes become a snare to us and we struggle, I mentioned earlier, various areas of addiction and we try so hard to overcome. You may be here tonight and there are areas of your life that you have fought for years to overcome and you just can't break it. Let me give you a word of encouragement. You never will. Because you can't do it. It's too big for you. It's too strong for you. 
with all of your knowledge, your wisdom is nothing compared to the wisdom and the intellect of the devil. With all of your strength of will, you are nothing compared to the snares that he has laid in your path. We can't do it. So how can I do it? I have the living spirit of God dwelling within me. And if I walk in the spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, it's impossible to do some things when you're doing something else. When you're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit of God is going to lead you in safe pathways. What does David say in the most popular psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 23? He leads me by still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He keeps me where I'm safe. And we walk along sometimes and we're walking in the Spirit and everything is wonderful and then the devil shakes some little trinket off to the side and there we go. I know some of you are fishermen. Do you know when James says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man, that includes you ladies, is tempted when he is led away by his lust and enticed. Do you know what the picture is that James is using there? The word led away and enticed. The word enticed is deliance, so that means to catch with bait. Do you know that the fish never sees the hook? All he sees is the bait. Man, there is a cricket. There is a there is a fat grasshopper. There's a big old worm that just plunked down right in front of me. How fortunate am I today that here I am hungry and I haven't had anything good to eat today and this fat worm, this cricket, whatever, just plunked in the water right in front of me. Man, I am going to go for that and then you get reeled in. The devil's a fisherman and his bait always has a hook in it. And we, when we go for the bait, we end up getting hooked. So walk in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you'll never fall for the bait. Not only should we wash, eat, and walk, we need to work. <clears throat> We're here for a reason. I grew up on a ranch. My dad believed in hard work. When it's pouring rain, when it's sleeting, when there's hail coming down, when the storms are the worst, you know what he always used to say? The more rain, the more rest. That was right before he said, get your clothes on, boys. We're going out to work. He said, when the weather's the worst, that's when you need to be with a stock. Be out there taking care of them, checking on them, feeding them, making sure they're okay. So work, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Why are you here? You're here for good works. Peter's going to give us some good works here in just a moment. You were created to do those good works. You could never do those good works before, but now that you are a new creature in Christ, you can do them. Good works, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation. You say, oh, that means I need to work hard 
Someone told me, I don't know if this is true or not. If any of you have heard of the guy named R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul on his deathbed, you know what he said? I hope I've done enough good work to go to heaven. You know why he said that? Because he believed in the false doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. By the way, Peter is going to teach us the perseverance of the saints is not a teaching of Scripture. We'll see it. We're, we're about to get into it in chapter 2. In other words, if you are truly one of the elect, you will persevere to the end. That happened with Saul in the Old Testament. Happened with Lot. Where did Lot end up? Incest with his two daughters, giving birth to two of the greatest enemies, the nation of Israel. Oh man, boy, he really persevered, didn't he? By the way, Peter calls him righteous three times. Don't try to tell me Lot was not a believer. That's not the way we want to go. God works into us what we work out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Why? Because, believe it or not, we can fail. We can go up in smoke or down in smoke. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you to do and to will his good pleasure. He's at work in every single one of us. If you're a child of God here, the Holy Spirit never stops working. But do you know how it works? <clears throat> There's one thing God's never going to do. He's never going to strong arm you. He's not going to do like my teachers used to do to me and grab you by the scruff of the neck and drag you out to make you stand in the corner or in the hallway. He's not going to do that. You know how the Spirit works? Especially when we're disobedient? Go back to the story of Elijah. Go back to 1 Kings 19 as Elijah ran away afraid of the evil Queen Jezebel and he hides in a cave and God sends a fire by in front of him and an earthquake and a storm. And then something terrified him. He'd seen storms. He could stand the earthquake. He could take the splitting of the rocks. You know what he couldn't take? I know, folks. I've felt it. When that moment of conviction comes and God the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you in a still, small voice, and you know that the power of the universe is behind that voice that is talking to your guilty soul. That's what will terrify you. God works in us. And after we wash and eat and walk and work, we need to rest. And Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke on you. Right here is the yoke. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. It's not a single yoke. It's a double yoke because we're never in it alone. You know, when you train a young ox how to work under the yoke, you know how you do it. You put him with a really good ox that already knows how to pull. And you teach him. And he learns. And he grows as he works together with that skillful and experienced ox. Take my yoke and learn from me. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. Listen to this carefully. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. This is something beyond the rest of salvation. 
Just like the cleansing that we're talking about here is something different than the cleansing of salvation. Jesus said to Peter, he who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. The bath is salvation. Washing your feet is confession. But they're both important. The rest that we gain at the moment of salvation, how wonderful it is to say, I know I'm a child of God. I have eternal life. But let me tell you something. The next day, you're tempted, you're tested, you're tried, you're disappointed, you're hurt, you're wounded. How do I get back into that rest? We take the yoke and we walk moment by moment, day by day with the Lord. And as we carry that yoke, we enter into the rest that remains for the people of God. And guess what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. Same word here. Strong inner motivation. You know, I'm not saying this to brag, just as an illustration. My dad was an Olympic runner. He competed in two Olympic games. He set six world records. When I grew up and got in high school, and I couldn't have been in his class. My oldest brother came close, but I couldn't have been in his class to save my life. But I'll tell you one thing he taught me. He said, I don't care if you win or lose. He said, always give it your best, but don't you ever let me catch you walking off the track. He said, I don't care if you're sick. I don't care if you're throwing up. I don't care if you break a leg. If you're in that race, you crawl and you cross that finish line. And I had to use that one time. You don't quit. What are we going to do in the Christian life? We're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're going to climb the mountain that God has put in front of us. Well, here it is. What is that mountain? Look at it. Verse 5, for this very reason, giving all diligence, strong inner motivation, you see, God has done everything you and I need except take away our responsibility. He's not going to do it for us. He calls us. He lifts us. He comforts us. He encourages us. He strengthens us. But He's not going to do it for us. We have to add this one element, and that is strong inner motivation. It's the essential element of growth. How can I best express my gratitude to him by being diligent? By the way, the word diligent is the same word translated in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. You can translate it, be diligent to show yourself approved unto God. Bringing in all diligence uh, I should point out, and it is there in your notes, the idea of giving all diligence uh, is connected with the idea of adding to your faith. And that little word add is an important word. <clears throat> it comes from the word we get chorus from, 
but in the original language here, it's epikorigeo. And what it means is in the ancient world, if you were a wealthy person and they wanted to put on a play or have a chorus, or if they wanted to do a drama, they would come to you and they would say, we need instruments, we need singers, we need uniforms. Will you be a benefactor to supply out of your great wealth? Could you supply the community? And they'd say, yes, I'll do that. They called it epikorigeo. Korigeo, we get chorus from. Epikorigeo meant to lavishly supply. To supply above and beyond. So in your faith, you have all the resources, all the treasures, all the wealth. And in the word of God, you have everything that you need to lavishly supply something to your faith. We're standing here. We have come to Christ. We are in Christ, no longer in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. We're in Christ. We have eternal life. Add to your faith. Step one, virtue. You say, what's virtue? Well, we saw it earlier. Look at verse three. God called us by his glory and virtue. Virtue means the exertion of power. I look at virtue here as being a synonym for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because that's the only power that God has given to us that makes it possible to do what's about to come. Unless I'm filled with the Spirit, all of these steps are going to be in vain. Only the Spirit of God can make them a rally. So be very diligent to add to your faith virtue. The filling of the Holy Spirit. With the filling of the Holy Spirit, what comes next? Knowledge. Study of the Word of God. I can tell you right now that if you're here tonight and you're not filled with the Spirit and not walking in the Spirit, I'm wasting my time in your behalf. You'll hear it. You'll get an intellectual understanding of it, but it'll never work out in your life. You remember what Jesus said in John 7, 17? He who wills to do the will of God will know the doctrine. He who wills to do. That is the desire of his heart that when I look at the word of God and I see things set in front of me, Father in heaven, this is my desire. Spirit of God within, won't you please take control of my life? Teach me how to humble myself and lay myself aside so that you can sit on the throne of my life. Put me on the cross because Jesus said, if any man wants to follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself every single day and follow after and that's what it's all about. So add to your faith virtue, that power of God, the Holy Spirit, so that I can study his word and understand it and gain the knowledge which is going to lead to step three. We start with virtue, then we start with knowledge, and knowledge leads to, if I'm truly understanding the word of God... It's going to have an effect in my life. Self-control. Self-control comes from two words, which literally means rule from within. Rule from within. Who is ruling in my life? 
A.W. Tozer, great Bible teacher, by the way, not trained in a seminary or anything else. A.W. Tozer said, in every soul, there's a throne and a cross. And every single day, you and I choose which one we're going to take. And if we take the, the throne, where we put Christ? Put him on the cross, didn't we? Do you know that the Bible talks about that in Hebrews chapter 6? It's called crucifying the Son of God afresh. Why? Because I refuse to allow him to have his rightful place in my life. What a tragedy. And yet, you know what I can say? I can say that that is the condition of the average believer in the United States of America tonight. Do you know how I know that? Because our nation is in rebellion against God. Our nation is involved in daily blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ. Our nation has turned from the light to the darkness. And we are heading toward judgment like we have never seen possibly in world history. We're on the brink of things that you and I never imagined would happen. They're already happening all around us. Who could have imagined five years ago that we would be where we are and some crazed psychopath breaks into a Christian school and commits murder and normally all the screaming is gun control, gun control, gun control, but now what is it? The Christians deserved it. Three little children that died. Three nine-year-old little children that died. You know what the media is saying? It's the Christians that made this happen. And I don't know if you've realized this or been aware of it, but the world is being prepared. The nation is being prepared for you and I to be sacrificed. You know why? Because they are being told every single day, Christians are intolerant. Christians are hateful. hateful. Christians are the real problem. All of the stuff about the Bible and Jesus, they're narrow-minded. They're not willing to live and let live. They're not willing to accept everyone. We love everyone. Let me say it clearly. The love of Christ compels us because we judge that if he died for all, it's because all were dead and he died for all so that those who live would know, that's you and I, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. And the next step in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14 is, therefore we no longer judge any man according to the flesh. Why? Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. You can take the lowest murderer. You can take the grossest pedophile. You can take the most evil person that you can imagine and bring that person to Christ and let the Spirit of God take over in their life and teach them the Word of God. And you will have a person who would sacrifice themselves to give that life to anyone else. But how are they going to know until Christians wake up and start taking a stand at quit compromising? How are they going to know? 
What is the truth worth if no one's willing to pay a price for following the truth? Add to your self-controlled perseverance. In other words, keep on keeping on. I'm, I'm going to try to move through this and wrap it up here. Perseverance. Stick to it. Don't quit. And to perseverance, godliness. You know, godliness is never used of God in the Bible. Well, I say that with a qualification. Godliness is never used of God. I'm actually quoting some of my Greek texts. Godliness is never used for God, but godliness is used for Jesus Christ. Is that interesting? What does Timothy tell us in 1 Timothy 3.16? Great is the mystery of godliness. Next phrase, he was manifested in the, in the flesh. Beheld in the world, observed by angels. So when Peter tells us here that we need to add godliness in our climb as we start with the filling of the Holy Spirit and then we add the study of the Word of God and then we start applying it to ourselves and gain that self-control and then we add perseverance and we keep on keeping on in the same process, guess what's going to come? Reflection of Jesus Christ. Can you look at your life and say, I'm more like Christ today than I was six months ago? I hope you can because that's why we're here. And once that character of Christ, that godliness, which is exactly what he talked about in verse 4, that we become partakers of the divine nature, now it's happening. When you find yourself forgiving those that are unforgivable, when you find yourself loving those that are unlovable, when you find yourself embracing those that are <clears throat> normally rejected and hated, I found myself one time in India on the side of a river baptizing a bunch of new believers that had come out of Hinduism. One of the guys that had trusted Christ came out into the water, a leper. Half of his face was gone. Huge chunks out of his arms. Say, <laughs> uh, no thanks, I'll have one of the other guys baptize you. Are you kidding me? I put that man down in the water, put my hand right on that rotten face, and I pulled him up out of the water, and he came up grinning out of both sides of his face because his face was gone. You know what I did? I gave that brother a big hug. If God wants me to die for embracing a leper, then let it happen. But I'll tell you one thing I would never do. I would never shun somebody like that that Jesus Christ accepts. And there are people around us that are lepers in many ways. There are many ways to be a leper. When you and I start getting to the point of godliness, we'll understand the next step, which is brotherly love, and that's exactly what it was. Brotherly love doesn't pick and choose. Brotherly love doesn't rate people on a scale. Brotherly love said, you're a child of God. You're a brother of mine. And I would die for you. 
There are records in the early church of men who had wives and families condemned to burn at the stake. And one of the young believers would step forward and say, I don't have a wife. I don't have children. Let me die in their place. And they were burned at the stake to save the life of another brother. When we start learning to love like that, and folks, we're going to have to. It's coming. It's going to be required of us to love like that. I'm not saying get burned at the stake. That could happen. Who knows? You say, oh, I, I love with the love of Jesus. You know what Peter says? Love is the final step in these stages and you'll never reach it unless you go through the process that he mentions. You don't get there automatically. You don't get there just because you're a believer. You don't get there just because you hear little tunes playing in your head and you're waltzing through and tiptoeing through the tulips of life. You get there down in the blood and the sweat and the tears and the nitty gritty of a broken world that hates your Savior and hates everyone who comes to Him and you rescue those brands from the fire and you rescue those sheep that are wandering and you bring them in and you get their filth and you get their dirt and you get their blood and you get their tears on you. That's when you're really starting to love. And I think... Maybe we have a lot to learn in the area of love. I know I do. I know I do for sure. We've already touched on this. You don't want to stand in front of Jesus Christ short-sighted and blind having forgotten that you were cleansed from your sins. What a, what a terrible tragedy. And that's why he says, as we read in our opening verses, the key verse of the book, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. Light that fire. Stoke that fire. Keep feeding that fire. You know, Paul says, quench not the spirit. Have you ever noticed there's two commands like that? Don't grieve the spirit and don't quench the spirit. They don't mean the same thing. Grieving the spirit comes because of sin in your life. Read the context there in Ephesians chapter 4. Grieve not the Spirit of God by whom you are called. The whole passage is talking about sin in your life. But look carefully at that passage where he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, quench not the Spirit. It's not sins that are in the context. It's good things. It's the good deeds. It's the faithful service. It's the faithful ministry. And that's what feeds the fire. It's like logs that you're putting on a fire. The more logs you put on the fire, the more it burns. What's the easiest way to put a fire out? Somebody tell me. Sorry? Most people say, pour water on it. No, just don't feed it. Just stop feeding it. You stop feeding the fire, it's going to go out. And when you and I stop going out of our way, extending ourselves, carrying a little bit of extra burden, going the extra mile, you know what starts happening to that fire? You know what the best Christian service is? The kind that hurts. The kind that humiliates. The kind that demands more. That's the best kind of Christian service. 
The kind that makes you, after you have lifted a burden off someone else, you go walking away, struggling down the street to carry the load that you're carrying. The kind that after you have sewn up and healed up a wounded and a broken heart, you walk away and you're bleeding all over yourself with a broken heart that you now carry. But I want to tell you there's a glory in it. There's a glory in sharing the sufferings of Christ because that's what he did every day. And you know what? In all the world, there has never been a more joyful person and a more wonderful person to be around than the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of that? Can you imagine that every day he rubbed shoulders with criminals, with convicts, with sinners, with adulterers, with blasphemers, with liars and deceivers and thieves? And every person he came in contact put a burden on him. You remember the lady with the issue of blood snuck up behind him as he was walking down the path and she got down on her knees and just touched the hem of her garment, of his garment. Do you remember what he said? Who touched me? The disciples said, you got to be kidding. There are people jostling you all over the place. You say, who touched me? What are you talking about? He said, no, I'm talking about who touched me. You remember what he said next? I felt power go out of me. When you and I actually get into the ministry that God wants for us, you know what's going to happen? Every person you bless, you're going to feel power go out of you. It's going to take something from you. And it's going to be glorious. There is nothing more glorious than to stand on the field of battle as you hold your shield and your sword and you're bleeding out knowing that you're dying and you see your troops getting away. That's what Nick Bacon did. And I can tell you that the citation that was read didn't cover a fraction of the things I spent hours in Nick's company. And he told me over and over again details. And that was only one incident of multitudes of incidents. He did three full tours of Vietnam. You know what he told me at the end of the battle? He said, I had holes in my uniform. I had the heels of my boots shot off. I had bullet holes all over and not a bullet touched me. But he said, I was crying for a drink of water. He said, I felt like I would do anything for a drink of water. The battle of Tamki lasted for eight hours. You read the citation, you think it could be done in 30 minutes? But I'll tell you one thing it doesn't tell you in the citation, and I'm going to close with this. As he ran forward and hurled his first grenade that took out that first machine gun pit, he turned around and was running back to his troops. They fired an RPG at him. It went right between his running legs, hit in front of him and exploded, lifted him off the ground and blew him 20 or 30 feet into a bomb crater. He said, when I looked up out of the, over the edge of that bomb crater, he said, all I could see were my men being shot down just like doll rags, just blown to pieces. 
And he said, I've never been so scared in my life. And he said, I curled up in a fetal position and I was shaking so bad. He said, I, I didn't think I could even do anything. And I said, God, I know I'm going to die today. Please don't let me die as a coward. I'm getting up out of this foxhole and I'm going to charge the enemy. I'm coming to you now. And he came out of that crater and attacked the enemy for another seven and a half hours without ever being shot. He was terrified. I mean, isn't that the attitude of a coward? Terrified. Scared to death. Shaken so bad he couldn't do anything. He said, let me tell you something. The fearless are not those who do not fear. The fearless are those who get up and climb out of their foxhole even when they're scared to death, even when they're crying, even when they're broken, even when they're crippled. And my friend, my prayer for each and every one of us, because you and I fall and we fail and we stumble and we struggle, don't ever quit. That's what will make you a hero on the planet of God. If you're still in the fight, if you're still in the word, if you're still a member of this church, if you're still doing what you can to lift, encourage, and strengthen the others, I don't care how many times you fail, you're a hero on the planet of God. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Don't quit. Climb the mountain. You may be crawling. You may be scraping with your fingernails. You, you ever see Lone Survivor? If you saw a lone survivor, do you remember how far that guy crawled on his hands and knees? He just didn't quit. What does it take to be a champion in the plan of God? It's very simple. Here's the formula. You ready for it? Don't quit. Don't quit. When it hurts, don't quit. When you're crying, don't quit. When you've discouraged yourself, don't quit. When you feel like you're worthless, don't quit. That's it. That's a two word, two words summarize this book right here. Two words. Don't quit. Stay in the fight. Stay in the word. Stay in prayer. We're going to cover a lot more things that we need to do along with these steps. Remember being a little kid? Any of you have grandkids? Come on, little Johnny. Imagine little Johnny says, nah, it's too hard. I'm going to quit. I'm just going to sit here and let you feed me the rest of my life. That's when little Johnny needs a strong application of the Board of Education to the seat of learning so that he gets back up on his feet and says, and that's why God in His grace and love, listen, have you ever been disciplined severely by God? I can tell you I have. How I thank God for it. Because you know what? He doesn't want us to quit. He wants us to be a champion. Could I just say to you tonight, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. We'll touch on this tomorrow, but the word sure...
means prove that it's genuine. It's a legal term that refers to a confirmation. We make the profession, I am a child of God. You know what the word sure means? Make your call and election sure, prove it. Prove it. Show the world. You know it. God knows it. Show the world. Become a partaker of the divine nature. Climb the mountain. Reflect the character of Christ in your life. Thanks for being patient with me. I've gone over time. I hope it was worth your time. God bless you tonight. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Father, thank you for your grace. Bless your word. Challenge us. Get us in the fight. Help us put on the full armor of God. Give us that never quit attitude. Help us to claim our ground and hold it until the Savior comes and calls us home. Let it all be not to any honor that we receive, though you honor those who are faithful. Let it be to the honor and the glory of our marvelous Savior who gave so much for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.